This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Hello, welcome to the program. You can find us on 9625 kilohertz. That's on the 31 meter band if you're in Southern Africa. You can also find us on channelafrica.co.za. I'm with Joala Netulo, Wisani Matebula, and Mosiburi Makura. Your top stories. The U.S. decision to withdraw from Iran nuclear deal expected to have a negative impact. The death toll continues to rise following a dam burst in Kenya. In economics, economists say South African motorists and consumers should be prepared for more fuel price hikes. And in sport, South African champions Mamelodi Sundowns to host La Liga champions FC Barcelona on May 16. Your news first. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. At least 41 people are now confirmed to have died after a dam burst in central Kenya. After a severe drought, weeks of torrential rains in Kenya have led to flooding and mudslides, leaving a total of 164 people, uh, raw people dead. The private, the private Patal Dam, used for irrigation and fish farming, burst in Solai near the Rift the Rift Valley city of Nakuru. Officials say more than 2,000 people are now homeless after over 400 homes were swept away. Three people are in a critical condition following a mosque attack in Verilam, north of Durban in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province. Reports indicate that three Egyptian nationals attacked people with knives and set fire to the mosque on Old Main Road in Ottawa. The wounded have since been taken to a local hospital. Reaction Unit South Africa spokesperson Prem Lapal Ram says police have launched a manhunt for the suspects. Upon arrival, we found um, that two uh, victims who were inside the mosque had the throat split by three armed men. The suspects were armed with knives and firearms. While we were treating the victims, um, a second victim was found inside a burning mosque. Uh, he had also had his throat split. He was attended to by paramedics and transported to hospital. The third victim is currently on scene and he's been stabilized by advanced life support paramedics. Uh, the suspects uh, fled in a white uh, Hyundai jet uh, towards the Phoenix area. A team of experts have been deployed to Bikoro in the province of Equator in the Democratic Republic of Congo to try and monitor the Ebola outbreak situation. This comes after at least 17 people have been killed by the Ebola outbreak that has erupted since in, in the rather since few days in the Bikoro territory, a village of the DRC northwestern province of Equator. Jean Noel Bamoisi reports from Kinshasa. The team of Ebola experts left Kinshasa on Wednesday heading to the Bikoro territory with a lot of proper equipment for the monitoring of the outbreak situation. 
At least 17 people have already been killed by the Ebola epidemic since it was reported about a week ago. The death cases have been recorded in the Ikoko Ipenge village in the Bikoro Health Zone. Besides the death cases, the province of Equator's Ministry of Health has notified at least 21 cases showing symptoms of the Ebola hemorrhagic fever, confirming two of the patients as real Ebola cases. The UK government has apologized unreservedly to a Libyan dissident and his wife after its actions contributed to their detention, transfer to Libya and his torture by Colonel Muammar Gaddafi's forces in 2004. British Prime Minister Theresa May says Abdul Hakim Belhaj and Fatima Bocha had suffered appalling treatment. Fatima Bocha, who was pregnant at the time, has accepted May's apology. The couple say an MI in MI6 tip-off helped the US kidnapped them in Thailand in 2004, Attorney General Jeremy Wright read a statement to Parliament. The UK government's actions contributed to your detention, rendition and suffering. The UK government shared information about you with its international partners. We should have done more to reduce the risk that you would be mistreated. We accept this was a failing on our part. And finally, the United Nations has warned that its credibility could has been warned rather that its credibility could be jeopardized if UN AIDS Executive Director Michelle Sidibe does not resign. A sexual rather a sexual harassment scandal has rocked the world body. The UN's official Martina Bostrom has accused UN Assistant Secretary General Dr. Louise Laurez of sexually assaulting her in Thailand in 2015. Laurez has denied this and has since resigned. Tabilembele has more. There are fears from civil society groups here in South Africa that this scandal could throw the United Nations into a crisis after allegations that Sidibe interfered in the 14-month-long internal investigation by allegedly offering Brostrom a promotion if she accepted an apology from lawyers. Dr. Richard Houghton is the editor-in-chief of Medical Journal The Lancet. It's actually a credibility issue not just for UNAIDS, but it seems to me that unless the executive director suspends himself, the credibility of the organization and indeed the entire UN system will be placed in jeopardy. I find it very regretful to conclude that. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Seventeen oh seven Central African time. Let's start in America, where recently United States President Donald Trump signed a proclamations granting a select number of countries exemptions from new tax measures on several export and import products until June for the first. These countries include all members of the EU, Mexico, South Korea, Australia, 
and Argentina. The U.S. is imposing a 10% ad valorem tariff on imports for aluminium products and 25% ad valorem tariff on imports for steel. The ventilate on this matter, Channel Africa spoke to Professor Fiona Tregena of the Department of Economics and Econometrics at the University of Johannesburg, Lumki Lemondi, a senior lecturer at Witts School of Economics and Business Science, and Sizue Pamla, the national spokesperson of the Congress of South African Trade Unions. What Trump is doing is very interesting uh, because uh, basically uh, what he's doing is using a weapon, a very important weapon, when you want to develop and protect local capabilities. It is something that I think the ANC government in the past 24 years dropped the ball completely. Uh, given our challenges of unemployment, given the deindustrialization that we've experienced in South Africa. So to an extent that you're looking at creating jobs in America and pushing American products, um, I think if I'm wearing blankets, I think he's, uh, he's doing what he had promised and committed himself to, which in fact in South Africa we've dropped the ball because we allowed ourselves by opening up all the doors and lost number of jobs in that sector, lost capability and struggle. Uh, to really create that diversified uh, industrial base which is critical for better jobs, for value addition and for growth of the South African economy uh, and our influence in the rest of the continent. Uh, Professor Tregena, Mr. Mondi is saying that uh, the African National Congress government has actually dropped the ball here, uh, which is why we are finding ourselves in uh, this uh, precarious situation. Do you agree? Well, I guess uh, what Lumkile was saying was that the South African government could have used health protection more strategically over the last few years in South Africa to protect our own domestic industry. I don't think it would necessarily be effective along the same lines as what Trump is doing now, because I'm not even convinced that uh, this announcement of his is going to be beneficial for U.S. industry. Of course, it will be beneficial for the U.S. steel and aluminum industries narrowly, but it's actually likely to be detrimental for U.S. industry more broadly, um, which he's supposedly championing. Um, one of the recent uh, studies which has just come out um, estimating the job impact of this announcement uh, in the U.S. actually projects that the U.S. will lose about 146,000 jobs as a result of this because the job gains in the steel and aluminum sectors will be outweighed by the job losses downstream because steel, including uh, South African steel going to the U.S., is, of course, inputs into U.S. manufacturing of uh, motor vehicles and a whole range of other products. So the more expensive steel is, uh, the less competitive uh, downstream U.S. manufacturing will actually be. Mr. Bondi, what do you think should be done uh, to address these uh, trade imbalances that President Trump has been lamenting about? Do you think diversification is the way to go, as uh, Professor is putting it? Well, I mean, in fact, if you look at the World Trade Organization, um, specifically the Doha Round, um, we've been fighting very, very hard as developing nations, particularly um, on the agricultural side, uh, fighting for market access. Remember that, particularly in Europe and America, there's a huge support that goes to to farmers uh, in, in forms of subsidies, etc. We should don't do that much in, in, in the rest of the developing world. 
right? And we've been fighting for market access, which has been resisted. So those debates and those agendas um, are very difficult to fight due to the imbalances in the global um, economic space. That is why uh, it's always important for South Africa to be part of a, of a bigger uh, grouping, whether it's the African continental free trade area or through the, the non-aligned movement to fight these issues. At the moment, um, um, we need to focus more on how to strengthen our own domestic interest and, and, the, and the regional interest, particularly within SADC, uh, in industrialization. Uh, given the fact that we've got uh, huge numbers, we've got huge opportunities and deficiencies in infrastructure, which requires a lot of aluminum as well as, as steel, uh, and that requires some form of leadership uh, that will look at uh, creating more bigger market around us, uh, and so that we can really create those better jobs and at the same time create value addition in the in, in the steel industry and compete uh, as uh, professor uh, Trigan was, was arguing around competitiveness because it's no use to have protection when you don't develop to be competitive. Uh, it just defeats the people. So when you protect, you develop capability, standing capability, so that you're in a position to compete not only within the region uh, but uh, but international as well. That is Sizwe Pamla, the national spokesperson of the Congress of South African Trade Unions, Kosatu. And you also heard from Professor Fiona Trekena of the Department of Economics and Econometrics at the University of Johannesburg, and Lumki Lemondi, who is a senior lecturer at WITS School of Economics and Business Science. They're speaking to Kumbero Mujarere. Epidemiologists and other health experts are hard at work in the Democratic Republic of Congo trying to get to the root of the latest Ebola outbreak and facilitate an effective response. In the past five weeks, there have been 21 suspected cases of a viral hemorrhagic fever, including 17 deaths. The World Health Organization, or WHO, has released $1 million US million from an emergency contingency fund to address the current outbreak in Bikoro in the Equatorial province, WHO spokesperson Atarik Yusarevich. This is yet another Ebola outbreak in Democratic Republic of the Congo. Teams are on the ground now trying really to understand the extent of the outbreak. So far we had two cases that have been confirmed from this northwestern part of the country. It is a remote area, so we need really to have epidemiologists and other experts to get to this uh, location and try really to make epidemiological mapping to understand where virus uh, may have traveled, who is potentially infected, and to identify all those who may have been exposed. So it is about uh, getting as fast as possible to the affected area and putting in place all those measures we need to have in place. And that's basically having a treatment center, having contact tracing, having safe burial teams, make sure that the laboratory capacity is also available, and also to see if necessary to use vaccines that are at our disposal. Tariq, the 17 people who are reported to have died, was it a case of them being presented late for treatment or what? Do you know anything surrounding their deaths? No, this is something uh, exactly that epidemiological investigation will show. So what we know that there have been patients in this particular area near Bikoro that uh, have been presenting symptoms that may be uh, consistent uh, with the symptoms of hemorrhagic fever. However, it is important to have really access and to make sure there are other 
diseases that may be similar. For example, there is a bloody diarrhea. So having a blood does not necessarily mean that it's a hemorrhagic fever. It can be something else. So it is really important to wait for our teams to get on the ground. We know now that it's Ebola. There is a virus because cases have been confirmed. And it is really essential to get there and not only understand what happened and how we got here, but especially to provide help to those who need and make sure that the virus does not travel any further. And the remaining suspected cases, how are they doing and um, what's happening to them? Are they isolated? What's happening around those who are suspected? So uh, as we speak, uh, partner organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières are trying to set up treatment centers. We know that people who are infected with Ebola need to be isolated, not only so they do not infect other people in their community, but also they can get the supportive treatment. We know that people who are treated for Ebola, although there is no particular cure for Ebola, there's no particular treatment, but supportive treatment increases the chances of survival. So it is important to isolate those who are suspect cases, make sure that their samples are being tested, and also to identify people who may have been exposed by being close contacts of those infected and that these people are monitored for 21 days. Okay, one last question, Tariq. Do you find that the general public in the DRC is now well aware of Ebola or um, there's still a lack of information surrounding the disease and what message is being communicated? Well, uh, we trust that the national health authorities who are leading the response to this outbreak are working with the local community in terms of risk communication. We've learned from previous Ebola outbreaks that community engagement is a key. It is extremely important that the community accepts and follows the recommendations done by health authorities when it comes to contact tracing, when it comes to safe burial practices, when it comes to isolating those who are suspects. So we as WHO in support to national health authorities are also planning to deploy experts in the area of risk communication. That is Tariq Yasserevic, a spokesperson for the World Health Organization, on the line from Geneva in Switzerland in conversation with Jane Robotata. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congo. For the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Let us interested in a real life story of friendship then join channel africa for a book reading of 65 years of friendship 
Written by George Bezos about his relationship with African icon Nelson Mandela. From Monday to Thursday at 2200 Central African Time and during the weekend on Saturday and Sunday at 800 hours Central African Time. Join us for 65 Years of Friendship, a real-life drama. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Seventeen nineteen Central African Time on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumela Lezondi. You can get in touch with us by finding us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. You could also send us emails. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, the government of Somalia and the United Nations are calling for investment in alternative energy and strong policies to halt charcoal trade. The call follows a conference that was held in Mogadishu to stop illegal trade in charcoal. Regional Coordinator of Resilience to Disasters and Conflicts in Sub-Saharan Africa's um, in, in the Sub-Saharan Africa Office of the United Nations is Sidu El-Haji Hamani, who joins us on the line now. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Saidu. Yeah, good afternoon. Um, what's the problem with uh, the trade in charcoal? Uh, the trade in charcoal, actually, uh, if you can look at it from an environmental perspective, uh, you can see that uh, this uh, charcoal, uh, sustainable charcoal production uh, used on trade in Somalia is causing uh, the destruction of trees, you know, uh, for charcoal, uh, which lead to the degradation of land, the destruction of the ecosystems, as a result, causes you know greater sustainability to flooding and drought. Uh, you can see that uh, uh, if I can give you some figures, we have uh, more than 8.2 million trees that were cut down for charcoal in Somalia between 2011 and 2017. You can see that this is really huge, and this situation uh, increases land degradation and food insecurity in Somalia. Uh, another key figure that if we can, I can give you that you can understand uh, the situation, you know, that, that, that is alarming when it comes to charcoal pro, uh, production in Somalia. Uh, one tree every 30 seconds is cut down to make charcoal in Somalia. That is really alarming. So you can mm. see that the whole environmental destruction around this, uh, this, uh, this situation. Um, is it the only source of energy there is? Uh, you can see that uh, I can say that uh, it's not the only source, but it's the main source. It's, not, it's the main source of energy. And beyond the fact that is the main source of energy is also the the the. the the the, the 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 trade that is behind it also you know that's maybe that could be the, another issue that uh, uh, we 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 discussed uh, during the conference in Mogadishu to see how we can really support the country to come up with uh, the right relations the right policies uh, to tackle this issue. Mm. Um, I- 
One might argue that if the trade in charcoal is stopped, then people might go hungry because they're not going to have any source of income. That's true. That's why also during this conference we discussed alternatives, you know, source of uh, revenue to help uh, charcoal producers, communities that are involved in this charcoal uh, business. So it's not only for us to really uh, push for uh, the right policies to stop the charcoal production, but for us it's really how to, if we have to do it, how to do it in a sustainable manner. Uh, at the same time, how we can also promote, uh, you know, some kind of alternatives uh, that are out there. We can look at how to accelerate uh, diffusion of okay, like energy efficient cook stoves, you know, uh, also maybe to see how we can uh, support the country to come up with sort of sustainable and efficient production of charcoal, like green charcoal for local consumption. And I'll see also how we can introduce, uh, you know, uh, biogas as another alternative source of energy in, in some areas with heavy loads of biodegradable feedstocks. So, yes, we discuss the fact that we should really stop the insustainable production of charcoal. But uh, we did also propose some alternatives that uh, uh, can be used in, in Somalia. Mm. Um, maybe if you can tell us briefly about Somalia in terms of uh, the crops that grow in Somalia. Um, are those crops perhaps uh, not able to be a source of income for the people there? I'm sorry, I didn't get your question. The crops that grow in Somalia, because you were talking about food security earlier, um, and I'm asking if um, the the crops that grow in Somalia, can they not be the source of income um, as well as food for the people of Somalia, as opposed to um, everyone um, cutting down trees? And then, as you say, that one tree is chopped down for coal, for, for charcoal every, um, um, every, every few minutes. Uh, I can say that uh, for us, to be really honest, to, to really summarize, you know, my, uh, my answer to this question is the only way, the only way we can really tackle it is to, 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 to promote, uh, I can say, alternative energy sources. Because uh, if you look at the, the, the context, uh, you know, of Somalia, is uh, the environment is already degraded, mm. and uh, cutting trees it contributes to drought. You know, it contributes mm. to drought, flooding, and loss of livelihoods. So, if you look at uh, for the wood cutting in Somalia, for us, through this strategy, could be reduced by 80 percent. As I said earlier, with for more efficient stoves like in urban areas. How easy would it be to introduce these other sources of energy that you talk about? Uh, which one? Uh, you're talking about alternative sources of energy. You're talking about alternative stoves um, that are energy efficient. How easy would though, How easily can they be introduced in, in that environment? Uh, they can be introduced through partnerships. Because for our Somalia, we think that public-private partnership is key if you really want to come up with the right solutions. Uh, 
because through partnership we can easily diversify uh, you know the source of income you know, and we can also uh, help them to increase their assets the asset of communities uh, once yeah. again as I said through the, this partnership uh-huh. we can easily establish solar energy markets all right to accelerate division of solar energy equipment to reduce local chakra production. So for us, yeah. partnership is key. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That is Saidu El-Haji Hamani, who's a regional coordinator of Resilience to Disasters and Conflicts sub-program for Africa at the United Nations Environment. He was on the line there from Nairobi in Kenya, staying with Kenya. The death toll from flooding caused by a burst dam or demo in Kenya's River Valley rose to 47 on Thursday and could go higher as more bodies are pulled out from the mud. According to the local police chief. After a severe drought, weeks of torrential rains in Kenya have fled to have led rather to flooding and mudslides that have left 164 dead. Here's Sirakimani. Solai in Kenya's Nakuru County, where homes once stood now stands thick mud Homes having been swept away in what residents have described as a sea of water on Wednesday night. Children and women caked in mud were rushed into waiting ambulances as residents came to terms with the 9 p.m. tragedy. Miriam Nyakeo, a resident in Solai, witnessed what happened. I have lost five of my friends following the collapse of the wall. I began searching for them the minute I heard that the dam had broken its walls. I now know that they are no more. The water from the dam, which is inside a neighboring flower farm, smashed into two villages. Residents remember hearing what they say sounded like an explosion. Now what is left is death and destruction. Dr. Fred Matiangi is Kenya's Interior Security Minister. We have lost a lot of lives here and this is very tragic. This is now not time to waste any minute on anything. The families that have been affected and we also try to help these people rebuild and go back to normal life. Authorities say at least 450 homes have been affected. Residents say the death toll could rise as several people are still unaccounted for while an unknown number are admitted in hospitals around the area. Heavy rains have caused havoc in Kenya over the last two months, killing at least 112 people by last week, according to the Kenya Red Cross Society. The rains follow a severe drought in the Horn of Africa region last year. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. 1730 news headlines here, Stola Natulo.
thank you. Spumalele making headlines. At least 41 people are now confirmed to have died after a dam burst in central Kenya. Three people are in a critical condition following a mosque attack in Verulam, north of Durban, in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province. And finally, the UK government has apologized unreservedly to a Libyan dissident and his wife after its actions contributed to their detention transferred to Libya and his torture by Colonel Muammar Gaddafi's forces in 2004. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. And the time is 17.31 Central African time. Now, appreciating the role of nurses, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, says none of its medical operations worldwide would be possible without them. The agency has about 8,000 nurses who are constantly at the side of patients providing quality health care. As we mark Nurses Week, which runs from the 6th of May to the 12th, we are now joined on the line by Khaladim Patele, a nurse with MSF in South Africa. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Oh, thank you very much. Now, what drove you um, to get into nursing? Oh, what caught me, yeah. So I think it's the love of people, no God. Are you still so there? Um, Kaladi, could I ask you not to move a bit too much because um, the parts where we can hear you and then the parts where we lose you. Um, maybe if you can answer that question for us again. I think from uh, I got it from a year after doing a gap year where I was doing missions where I was basically getting involved in community work and then from there I just decided no I want to be a, a nurse that's where it came from. Um, what um gave you that idea? Was it perhaps your personality? Was it something you saw, or was it because um it was a profession that was um being advertised in the area? What was the reason? No, it wasn't advertised at all. Just uh, most of the work that we were doing, we were working with the clinics, and then from the community health clinics, there were just certain people in the way, in the manner which they were working and helping the community that really caught my eye to it. What were you doing yeah. uh, during that gap year? Uh, I studied music as well during that time. I was studying music part time, and I was also. Uh, uh, to be involved with the mission that uh, there's a church in Secunda called His Way Family Church. They, they, they've got like a gap year program and then I was doing that gap year program and also studying music. Yeah, maybe if you can briefly expand on that. What, were you, what was it exactly that you were doing with the church? Okay, yeah. It, uh, outreaches where we went into rural areas where they, like uh, less uh, advantaged areas where whereby we provided uh, food and then we had like a kitchen soup going on there and then also we had like those who needed medical attention, there were those that we physically took to the doctors and paid for their consultations and those who were not able to go provided transport them to go to those various clinics. Mm. Um, And then you then made the decision to be a nurse. What first step did you take? Where did you train? How was the training? Uh, I did a four-year degree at uh, Tswane University of Technology in, uh, in Pretoria. 
So the, the training the first year was, uh, I could say it was quite difficult because, you know, first year, let's say they, it's basic, basic, basic nursing care where you have to pass patients and then they teach you like, it's like basic, basic, basic care where you find that there are patients in hospital that can't be fed, you have to feed them. For me, it was, uh, for being a male nurse, it's actually just quite a bit difficult eh, being exposed to that kind of environment as well. Um, you're a man, and the profession largely consists of um, of women. Would you say that this is an environment that easily accepts men um, who want to be nurses? And you also are mentioning difficulties um, that you had as well as a male nurse. Yeah, I think uh, it, it actually there's opportunities for males as well because during the tra- throughout the training, the the sisters that we are working with in the hospital, they, they how can I say? You get extra special attention, if I can say. <laughs> <laughs> Everything with it. <laughs> I think it, it, it becomes a breeze. It becomes easier. They know as well. It's not an easy profession. Like, uh, like if you look at society, it's not every day you find a man deciding to be a nurse. You get friends. Bobby Tabo says, And you just pick up from that. And it's actually encouraging as well. They encourage you. You know, it's not the end. There's still more to this. It's not about only the bedside. There's in this other path that you can follow. The nice thing actually about going to school, doing the four-year degree, you get exposed to the different uh, uh, units that you can work. Not only in the hospitals, there's community health that you can go work in. There's psychiatry where you work in psychiatric hospitals. So it actually gives you a broader view, and you see actually where you want to, where you see yourself. When you get that open eye, it starts making sense. Um, let's talk about that terminology that you briefly mentioned. Um, uh, when you say they uh, they call you sister as well, and uh, um, is sister the right word for it? Because we're used to seeing sisters in hospitals. Yeah, no, you can you get like there's a confusion as you get with patients. Like some will say, I, I don't even know what to call you. Some say sir, and others will say doctor. Mara, correct that as well. Like no, I'm not a doctor. I'm a professional nurse. They just, I mean, I always, for me, I just made it simple and like, you can call me by my name, Khala, it's fine. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, um, and now... And you, get, you get those, you get those jokes, yeah, where people call you, because I also, there's a number of friends of mine, the power, yeah. which we all male nurses, and it was quite, it became an internal, like, an in, a in joke for us, calling each other... Sister. Like, a friend of mine, <laughs> visit and just tell hey, sister... <laughs> yeah. yeah, and now um, the profession itself. What are the challenges? Uh, okay, the profession itself. The challenges. I would say it's, uh, there's a high demand for 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 for, for nurses. Uh, I think the demand is still there. Um, is there? Uh, uh, let me just interject there because sometimes you hear a lot of nurses saying they can't find employment. Is the demand everywhere? Uh, I'm going to give you a typical example. What, uh, what, uh, when I finished Comtas, uh, there are there is a need, but then they, they, you find that the post will tell you the go uh, in the government will tell the post are uh, are fro- There is a post, but the post is not is not a funded post. There's a lack of funds for those posts, and then your Comtas after Comtas, they just tell you we can't absorb. Normally, what they do when you finish your Comtas, it's like a one-year contract, and then they absorb you. Now you find that nurses after they Comtas, they're not being absorbed anymore into the clinics, and then. You find there are still those gaps in the clinics where, in a, when I when I before I came to MSF, the clinic I was working at, it's like you see close to ninety, a hundred clients alone on a day. Mm. That's, that's in a twelve-hour shift, and mm. then it, it, it 
kind of burnt you out in a way. Mm. Um, but it's still the same, yeah. And what do you do with um, MSF? Okay, with MSF, I'm a clinical activity manager at MSF. I manage the, the Korea Care Center Clinic in Rustenburg. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a SGBV uh, program. And then also um, uh, the line manager for the and technical reference for the CTOP nurses. And I'm also involved in the advocacy for access to CTOP in the, in the Northwest. All right. Thank you very much for joining yeah. us. Thank you. That's Khaled who's a South African nurse with Doctors Without Borders. Now, the African Internet Summit is taking place in Dakar in Senegal. Robin Wilton of the International Institute of Communications Technical Outreach Director for Identity and Privacy in the Internet Society's Trust and Identity says the Internet Society and the African Union Commission have unveiled a new set of guidelines that highlights how privacy protection and their responsibility use of personal data are critical factors in building greater trust online. Well, the summit as a whole has a very wide focus about internet governance and collaborative work on internet technology and also skills transfer for Africa. There have been workshops on network operations, on internet of things, there have been hands-on courses, so it has a very wide scope. More specifically for me, I've been here, as you indicated in your email, really to help launch the privacy and data protection guidelines, which we've created in partnership with the African Union Commission. The guidelines with regards to privacy protection and responsible use of personal data. Can you elaborate on that as to what does that entail? Yes, absolutely. Well, this was an initiative which the African Union Commission kicked off because back in 2014, the ministers agreed So the the African Union members agreed on a convention, the so-called Malibu Convention, on cybersecurity, electronic commerce, and data protection, protection of privacy. But since then, that convention has actually, it's only been ratified by three of the member states. And in something like, I think, 14 or 17 member states, there isn't actually a data protection law yet. So the Commission felt that there was a need for some help to remove obstacles to the adoption of the convention. And that was what we were trying to do with these guidelines to say, look, we know this is difficult if it's not something your government has done before. But here are some of the considerations we think you should be looking at. Here are the stakeholder groups who we think should be involved. And here are some practical steps that you can take to make the convention easier to turn into national law. Now, how far have this gone in as far as the governance of the internet is concerned on the continent? Well, it's a very diverse continent and so the answer to that is differently in different places. So for example, the three countries who have already ratified the convention, the first one was Senegal, then Guinea-Conakry was the second I think, and Mauritius also was either second or third. But in other countries, so for example, I think, I believe that in Nigeria for instance, there's been a data protection bill that has been, so to speak, on the books for several years, but hasn't progressed to being a law. And I think the same is true in a a couple of other countries in the continent. So it's very varied, but in some senses, that's almost to be expected, because the continent itself is so varied. You have very different cultural expectations of privacy in different countries. You have, in some cases, different legal systems and, of course, different stages of economic development and therefore different levels of dependence on the Internet. So it's 
very diverse picture. And again, what we've tried to do with the guidelines is make it an approachable subject for a government, regardless of its current state, just to give them some simple things that they can do now to get the stakeholders around the same table to understand what the problem is and to understand what the law should be trying to do. Now, I mean, if you talk about the issue of stakeholders, who are we talking about in particular here? Yeah, that's a good question. So the groups that I identified mostly were, well, first the governments, because they have to create the rules. They're the only people who can legislate in this area. Second, the data protection authorities. And again, there's a very varied picture across the continent. Some countries already have a legally established data protection authority, others don't. And it's a very strong recommendation in the Malabo Convention itself that governments should create a data protection authority and give it the legal powers to do what needs to be done. So that's the second stakeholder group is data protection authorities. The third group we identified, obviously, is the data controllers, the companies and organizations that are collecting and using personal data. And then the fourth group really is the citizen in a broad sense, the citizen both as an individual, as a consumer, as a citizen, and also the individual as represented by other organizations, such as, for example, civil society or consumer organizations. And now, how are the individual's rights to privacy online and offline going to be protected in as far as the usage of the internet is concerned, looking at the guidelines on internet governance? Well, the approach we've taken is, and it's an approach which you will find outside Africa as well, but you won't find it everywhere. But we think that the best approach here is to base this on fundamental rights. So where an individual has a fundamental right to privacy, we think that's a good basis on which to build the appropriate laws and regulations, because it gives you something which is more or less universal. Different cultures might have a different idea about what that right to privacy should involve, but there aren't many cultures which will simply say, no, no, you just don't have a right to privacy at all. So we think that's quite a good common basis. But beyond that, you then have to build on that and say, well, how much of this privacy protection can we achieve through the law and how much requires something else? So, for example, in the United States, the approach is more to say to industry, you should self-regulate. You in the, in the insurance industry or in the finance industry or on child protection online, you as, as a network services and content providers, you should self-regulate because otherwise we will step in as government and we will do it for you. So... So one approach is to let the law go so far and then have self-regulation take over. Sometimes that works. Sometimes you need the law to actually step in and say, you know what, in the case of medical data, we are going to legislate. We're not going to leave this to you to do self-regulation. And then on top of the self-regulation, there's other stuff that individuals and companies need to do about responsible data use. That is Robin Wilton, who has been attending the African Internet Summit that's taking place in Dakar in Senegal. He is the Outreach Director for Identity and Privacy in the Internet Society's Trust. It's time for your economic news. Here's Usani Matebula.
Good evening. Uh, thanks, as Pumelele. China's GCL Group has signed a memorandum of understanding with Egypt's Ministry of Military Production to build a solar panel facility at a cost of up to two billion US dollars. Egypt in 2014 announced extensive plans to develop renewable energy, targeting 4.3 gigawatts of uh, wind and solar projects to be installed over three years. But many investors pulled out following contractual disputes. Egypt aims to meet 20% of its energy needs from renewable sources by 2022. And South Africa's manufacturing sector is losing its recovery momentum, which was uh, seen in the last quarter of the past year. Manufacturing production sales are disappointed with 1.7% drop in the first quarter of 2018 from the last quarter of 2017. Petroleum, chemical, rubber and plastic products divisions made the largest contribution to the decrease in the first quarter of 2018. Manufacturing production decreased by 1.3% in 2018 compared with March 2017. NetBank economist Nikki Weimar says uh, the weak rent and the potential trade war may result in modest recovery in the sector. We do think that recovery will be moderate and we do think that recovery will be driven by selective industries within the manufacturing sector. The factors that will keep the recovery modest is a stronger currency because that's obviously going to weigh on exporters. And the fact that we've seen increased risk creeping into the world economy through this ongoing trade war between China and the United States and also more recently the U.S.'s decision not to renew the Iran nuclear deal and South Africa's Economic Development Minister Abraham Patel says the Supplier Development Fund that Masmad Group has set up has started to yield, to yield positive results. Patel says the company is able to place orders from local suppliers, supported the funds uh, as they have been able to improve their products to the level that meet its standards. The fund was set up after a competition tribunal directive to assist Masmad's existing and new suppliers to enhance the quality of their products. Patel explains. Peers as if the recovery Today Walmart and Massmart are actually some of the biggest cheerleaders of this fund because even though they were not keen on it at the time, they've seen enormous benefit to them. There are 31 new suppliers that have been developed through this fund and to date Massmart They've placed orders already of about 800 million rand. In many cases, these are small or medium-sized businesses. Many of them are black-owned businesses. And analysts uh, say the protectionist uh, stance taken by the U.S. in having a negative impact on South African production sales, mining and manufacturing production sales took a knock in March this year and expected to have a negative impact on the overall growth of a number for the first quarter of 2018. Economist Nicky Weimar. appears as if the recovery in manufacturing production, which started towards the end of last year, lost momentum in the first quarter of this year. If we look at its likely contribution to this economy in the first quarter or GDP in the first quarter, um, you're now looking at a decline um, of 1.7% of manufacturing production. So it's going to subtract from growth in the first quarter of this year. As uh, the Africa travel in Durban, Durban ends, 
Exhibitors say they're happy that they have been able to find new buyers. The event attracted more than 7,000 delegates, including exhibitors, international buyers and the media. It is a platform for established and emerging tourism businesses to advertise their work. Mukwena Murulane from Crest Hotels in Botswana and Muetise Godwin of Yala Safaris in Botswana among those who attended the Indaba. Financial indicators say the dollar trading at 9.76, Botswana Pula and 9.87, Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, we've got the dollar at 3.57, Brazilian Real at 63.22, Russian Ruble at 67.29, Indian Rupee at 6.36, Chinese Yuan and at 12.58 against the South African Rand. Also trading at 73 pence to the British pound and 84 cents against the euro. Commodities uh, gold is at $1,315, platinum at $916 per fine ounce, brand crude oil $76.99 per barrel. That's your economics news. Thanks for signing your sports news now. Here's Mosebudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news. South African APSA Premiership 2017-2018 champions Mamelodi Sundowns have announced that they will be hosting La Liga champions FC Barcelona on Wednesday, the 16th of May at the FNB Stadium in Johannesburg as part of the Nelson Mandela Centenary Celebrations. Now, kickoff for that match is at 6 p.m. Central African time. Sundowns, as well as the Mozepa Foundation, are in partnership with the Interministerial Committee of the South African Government that is responsible for the Nelson Mandela centenary celebrations as well as the Nelson Mandela Foundation, the South African Football Association as well as La Liga. Now Sundowns President Patrice Mozebe has more on this much anticipated clash. You see um, particularly Barcelona has got a tight 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 schedule very tight and there are some of the biggest football nations in the world that uh, that have have created partnerships and have agreements and um, have made sure that Barcelona visits their countries. So, so the program is, is, is very, very tight for the next few years. And, uh, and we saw the opportunity because we've been talking for quite some time. And uh, it's, 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 it's important for South African football. Uh, Mamelodi Sundowns is you know, we are humbled uh, to be but a small part of that football in South Africa. Well, asked about the delay on the confirmation of this match, Mutsipa says it wasn't an easy deal to clinch as this is the year of the World Cup. This is a year of the World Cup. And uh, if it was any other year, it would have been much, much, much easier. Uh, well, much, much easier in the sense that uh, it would, you know, as I said earlier, Barcelona is wanted in America, in China, in, and uh, and if we didn't bring them now, we would have had to wait for many, many, many years. And we, we don't want to bring any any team in J, you know. South Africans, uh, South Africans are very 
are very ambitious people, and uh, and we have to try and uh, and bring the very best. Well, this is the second time Sundowns host the Spanish side back in 2007 that La Liga outfit recorded a 2-1 win over the um, um, South African champions. Now to Rugby News, SA Rugby President Mark Alexander has confirmed that Springbok coach Rassi Erasmus has free reign to select as many overseas-based players as he wishes collapsing the 30-test rule that had been imposed on selecting players plying their trade abroad. Now Alexander also said that Erasmus has already spoken to all the overseas-based players that he will be considering and their clubs ahead of the June incoming tour against England. As we said, you know, Russia's got a year to prepare. The last year of preparation, you're allowed to pick players locally and abroad. So I think Russia has been speaking to some players and we've given the coach the leeway because he only has 18 games. You give the guys an opportunity to be seen uh, 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 for, uh, for, for the World Cup team. So uh, this, uh, from now until the 18, 18 games over, he wants to give every player possible uh, opportunity to be seen for the Springbok team. Rassi has met with every player that has the possibility of playing for the Springboks. He met with the clubs and with the players. So he has done that. They had agreed to, to, to assist. But we have to work closely with the clubs, you know, because and I think he has a unique uh, relationship with the clubs, being a coach himself. While Alexander says that the success of the Springboks against England will be a series win and that the barometer set for the team as well as Erasmus is to go and win the World Cup next year in Japan. A 2-1 uh, uh, win over the series, I think that will be a success. And I think a, a success is um, we know we're going to lose some games. He's not going to win every game because he's going to give different guys different times to play. But uh, the pinnacle is the World Cup and we, we don't want to go to World Cup just to compete. Uh, we want to go and win the World Cup, and, and that's uh, the plan, and, and we'll work towards that. And finally, in boxing news, reigning South African World Boxing Organization bantamweight champion Zolani Tete will take part in the multi-million rand boxing bonanza starting in September later this year. Now, according to Tete's manager, Mlandeli Tenging Fene, the WBO champion is a son, or rather has signed to fight in the money-spending World Boxing Super Series tournament. Tenging Fene, as well as Tete, are in London, where they attended the launch of the tournament on Wednesday. The overall winner of this tournament will pocket 11 million US dollars. Well, the Zion Sports News at the Sour. I'm back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-seven Central African time recapping our top stories. The U.S. decision to withdraw from Iran a nuclear deal expected to have a negative impact. The death toll continues to rise following a dam burst in Kenya. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Luyanda Maome, technical producer Sihlen Lovu, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, on SMS on plus 27-82332-5905. Plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. We leave you with Ndimbonile by Luis Obala and Sands.